Welcome to another episode of Red Hill Stories, discussions about faith, life, and Jesus. My name is Lyle Walker. Today with me is Sean Dowdy. Welcome, sir. Glad to be here. Uh, if this is your first time listening to Red Hill Stories, I encourage you to go back to our website, redhillschurch.com. You can check us out under Stories. You can also find us on iTunes um, and anywhere you get your podcast. Just please hit subscribe. Again, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I say us, it's just me and you, right? As far as I know. There's nobody else in the room so besides the Holy Spirit. It gets super spiritual. <laughs> we always have to have these weird moments in the beginning because if we're going to talk about Jesus, and sometimes that can get a little weird, we got to get comfortable, right? Sure. Right? So if, Okay, so if you've never listened to one of our episodes before, um, and you're like, what is Red Hill Stories? So what we've done over the last you know six months uh, – is I like to sit down with some of our members and get their stories because there's this weird thing that Sundays are great for, right? We get to come together on Sundays and worship Jesus and learn about him through the teaching. We get like maybe 20, 30 minutes to really get to know each other. But most of those discussions on a Sunday are minimal at best, right? What we really want to do, the goal of this podcast, isn't just to talk about us but is to shine a bright light that is Jesus and what he's done in our life um, and tell other people about the goodness of Jesus. And so that's what this is about, right? So again, thank you for joining me, right? Yeah, sure. We're going to sit down for a little while, get to know Sean Dowdy just a little bit better. So one thing that we do, Sean, um, and this kind of helps break the ice a little bit, Mm -hmm. is uh, we want to know a little bit more about you, yes, about Jesus, but what's something about Sean Dowdy that maybe not everybody really would just know by just looking at you? Well, I have a weird phobia. Okay. Um, I love phobias. I only have really one thing on the planet Earth that I am absolutely terrified of, and that is vomiting. Vomiting. Yep. Like your vomit or somebody else's vomit? I'm fine with someone else's. Oh, okay. But the idea of me being sick is... Uh, yeah, it, it uh, really bothers me. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I, I use the example, and, and this is probably minimal hyperbole, that if someone, you know, set a steak, do- steak knife down next to me and said, you have a choice, you can either retch in that garbage can or you can bury this knife into your leg to the hilt, what are you going to do? I'd say, uh, hand it over. <laughs> <laughs> That's extreme, sir. That is a phobia. I could literally count off to you every time I've been physically sick since probably age eight really mm-hmm. that's amazing you're a lot like my wife and i'm gonna out her a little bit here but she doesn't care she knows she hates vomiting like my wife had three pregnancies and i want to say that like she threw up maybe once and it wasn't because she didn't need to she just refused like it was like i'm not gonna throw up right? oh i'll fight it yeah i'll yeah. fight it for hours yeah just be miserable this, this is a, this is the worst intro to a podcast it's ever awful awful but also the best <laughs> Because I was about to say, it was like, my thing is like, if as soon as I get sick, I'm just like, let's get this over with because I don't want to suffer. So, okay. So, vomiting. There not, you go. Yeah. yeah. That's it. That's Had to get it out. Had to, ew, that's good. I like that. I like that. Um, I was going to say, I thought you were going to say like, you're, I mean, I know you like to bike, right? You have a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say something like, even though I look like a biker, I, I don't, this is just all a facade, right? Like, you're, you're just like... <laughs> Like you're trying to create an image that doesn't actually exist. I don't even own a bike. I just, you know, I just like to look like one. No, no. no. 
it's I, like what's the joke you know i didn't i didn't i'm not a doctor but i did stay in a holiday inn last night yeah yeah or something like that it's like i'm not a biker but i did stay at a holiday inn no I, i'm like the i so so there's these guys that ride motorcycles that don't actually ride but they just like to polish it you know and then they'll ride up to like the the local dealership right. you know and they'll the show Harley it Davidson, off you know yeah, and then yeah. they go and they get some food and go i'm the guy that like i wash my bike like twice a year oh um so yeah i'm i'm all about the actual riding, not so much the uh, the lifestyle part of it. Oh yeah, you've ridden to church a few times. Yeah, anytime I can. And now I, I try to avoid riding in the rain if I don't have to, just because it's it's miserable in Florida, yeah, and there's just nothing fun about walking around in wet denim and leather. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. No. Whenever I see there was just whenever I see somebody that's like driving a moped or something, and it's like pouring down rain, I was I'm always like, do you want pull over the side of the road hey, you want to just throw the moped in the back of the truck and you just jump in because like i just feel so bad for them and it can rain at any time in tallahassee oh yeah it's being stuck on the uh, interstate especially if you don't have a face mask it's just the worst Ooh, that's when you like pull under like a like an underpass or yeah. something right yeah you i've just done wave. that more than a couple times oh my gosh okay all right so we got vomiting and you are in, in fact a biker well sure. A, a biker enthusiast. Does that work too? Oh, that sounds terrible. That but sounds terrible. That sounds even worse. I ride a motorcycle. You yeah. ride a motorcycle. There it is. That's 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 more pure. Okay. All right. All right, Sean. So tell me, what is your story? You know, it's it's always kind of odd for me to know how to share my my testimony mm. when we use church speak because uh, most of my life was pretty pedestrian. I don't have a lot of crazy. Uh, chaos or wild adventures, but um, I mean, I guess that's a good thing. But uh, yeah, so I mean, um, you know, I've lived in Tallahassee for almost 35 years. My family moved here from the Tampa Bay area around uh, 1986. Um, my parents have been together my whole life. Uh, my father's a retired cop. Uh, my mom was at home with us when I was a kid. Um, in middle school, she went back to school, became a nurse. So, I mean, we were kind of the prototypical, you know, middle class, upper middle class family. Um, had a good relationship with my parents growing up, you know, grew up in a loving home. Um, you know, being raised here in the South, um, I grew up in and around church. Um, my father did not go to church with us growing up. Hmm. Uh, my mom took us. But uh, from, you know, the youngest age I can remember, I, I've always been in and around churches um so you know in my early years i mean it was just you know kind of typical life um you know coming to tallahassee was a bit of a uh, i would say kind of a culture shift but i was still young enough that i didn't really feel a lot of it Wait, how are you when you moved uh, to tallahassee 10, 10. Yeah. okay yeah so um the transition though from that you know because i did fifth grade here that transition from elementary to middle school was a tough one. I mean, I think the transition to middle school, no matter where you live, is tough. Awkward. Uh, I mean, middle school is just rough all the way around. That's um, right. You know, it's awkward. You know, kids are cruel. You know, you're dealing with hormones. You're dealing with body changes. You know, they're smelly. That's right. Uh, it's just there's nothing that's really pleasant about middle school. <laughs> um, but, you know, kind of on top of that, I was a pretty shy, introverted kid. Hmm. I mean, I was stick thin, super shy, super self-conscious. Um, you know, just I was just cripplingly shy as a child. And um, the, the school that I went to for middle school uh, was a bit, a bit of a tough environment. You know, so for, for those who, you know, live or in the Tallahassee area, uh, I went to Griffin Middle School. And uh, it is a, how would you put it? It's a uh, racially diverse environment and uh, 
quite diverse from socioeconomic standards. Um, so for me, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white environment uh, up until that point. And so it was a bit of a culture shock for me. Um, now you, you had said that your dad didn't really go to church. What was your experience with church at this point with Jesus? Like do, were you were like a, like a quote unquote culturally Christian family? Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. Um, it, for me, I thought that everybody just went to church. Like, okay. I, I, I don't think I knew really families where the kids didn't go to church or the families didn't go to church. I just thought that it, that's what everybody did. Okay. Like, you know, I'm an American, so I'm a Christian. I go to church. Right, that's right, what right. you do. Um, so, yeah. Um, but, but heading into middle school, it was just, it was a big culture shock for me. Um, all of a sudden, you know, there were, uh, people who, who just, I was hated simply because uh, of my skin color. Uh, I didn't understand why. Uh, it was not, I did not grow up really with an idea about race one way or the other as a kid. Uh, I remember coming home in sixth grade and asking my mom, I was like, hey, uh, mom, the, the kids at school, they keep calling me a cracker. Like, <laughs> a cracker barrel? I was like, what is it? I don't understand. Is it, is it like, is it because I'm super pale? Like, I don't understand. Like, like, I know it's supposed to be something bad, but I don't, I don't know what it means. So I remember my mom trying to kind of explain that to me. Um, what was Tampa like? What was like your environment in Tampa? I mean, it was it was elementary school. Yeah. So you know, it's you have to kind of be almost a certain age, I think, to really recognize that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would say that from the perspective, you know, of, of a young white kid, it might be yeah. different if you grow up as a you know a young black child. You, yes, you yeah. might have a, you might be. Um, I think have that innocence stripped off at perhaps a younger age. But for me, it wasn't even something that, that registered to me that, you know, people have different skin colors and that means something. It, mm -hmm. it didn't mean anything to me until that point. And so that made it kind of that much harder for me because um, I had people, you know, I, I was bullied and tormented for mm -hmm. a three year stretch. Um, and I didn't understand why. And, uh, but adding on to the shyness and the introversion that was part of my personality, um, that began to create a lot of fear and anxiety with me. Um, and, you know, I felt, uh, I felt invisible. I felt other, mm. you know, at, at school. And so that began changing a lot of my behavior. Uh, I remember that uh, I started, I had this big old, um, like, army duffel bag backpack. And I was afraid to use my locker at school. So I carried every single book that I owned in my backpack every single day. Uh, which made it just that much easier for people to like grab, snatch it, and you know pull me to the ground. Yeah, yeah. I refused to use the bathroom at school because I was afraid to go into the bathroom. So I just oh. hold it until you know I got home, you know, every yeah, day. Yeah. And um, but that was kind of the environment for that period of my life. And there, there's so much that that changes in a young person's mind during that phase. And uh, and so I wasn't even really sure what was taking place, but it just it began kind of twisting little parts in my mind were, were you the only one being picked on like this or was there, was there a culture at griffin where it was every white kid was getting picked on or did you see um, the opposite did you see black kids getting picked on was there i would say probably i mean it went both ways okay but um you know i there was a lot. There was just a lot of racial tension. Gotcha. The con that's where I was introduced to the concept of not just kids fighting, but like groups of kids fighting, and that being kind of the reason why. Mm. And uh, and and for someone who is just uncomfortable in their own skin, I mean, this is pretty terrifying for me. Um, 
you know, at that age, all I really wanted was to kind of, was to be accepted and to kind of have some sense of belonging. And then I felt foreign and alien, um, during that period and, and never really felt like I fit in. And, um, so around the age, I guess, of eighth grade that began manifesting, um, in depression with me, I began kind of isolating and pulling back from people. Um, and so, you know, that was probably, um, the beginning of some of the, the rough years for me, uh, you know, following middle school, I transitioned into high school, you know, also still here in Tallahassee, I went to Godby and, um, everything that I experienced in middle school, once I got to high school was just, was amplified, you know? Um, so the rough years weren't middle school. So we got, it, it was just different. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, along other things, you know, I, I grew three, three and a half inches in eighth grade. Mm. So I was still the shy, introverted kid, but I was, you know, quite a bit bigger than I was. So that just kind of changed the trajectory of things a little bit. Um, you know, in high school, the fights and the violence were, were pretty common. You know, the the dynamic at Godby changed because um, Godby at that time pulled from like what year was this this was i was at godby from 91 through 94 okay and at that time godby pulled both from the frenchtown area which for listeners who may not you know be familiar with tallahassee frenchtown is a one of the poorer areas it's a predominantly black uh, neighborhood uh and it also pulled from bluntstown highway highway 20 which was like west tallahassee uh, yeah and it was the same type of poverty but it was your more rural white poverty and it took those two groups of people and threw them together in a pressure cooker yeah, and then good. you know everything just you know yeah. boiled over kind of that's on a regular right. basis so um that uh that fear that had welled up inside of me over those years uh, began to kind of twist and you know if if fear is left unchecked it begins to kind of morph into other things. And for me, uh, it began to manifest in a lot of anger and bitterness uh, in my personal life and in, in how I interacted with other people. And, you know, and for me at that time, you know, when you're young, you, you look at whatever your current environment is and you think that's what all of life is like. So I looked around, you know, the halls of Godby, and I assumed that this is what life is like. This is a microcosm of all of society. And I had a particular catalyst event happen my freshman year of high school. Um, was sitting in class one day and, uh, you know, there was a kid in the class who was about a year older than me and just typical, you know, teenage boy behavior. He was just yeah. picking at me, picking at me, picking at me and kind of went back and forth all class. Um, nothing, it wasn't race related that, you know, the young man was black, but it wasn't, it, that wasn't, a factor in what was going on. It was just, you know, two punk kids being punk kids. But as we were leaving that class, um, he grabbed my backpack and pulled me backward. And I remember I kind of reached back and swatted him away. And at that point he got angry and he punched me in the back of the head. And I staggered out of the front door. And it was one of those, at the time I was not a kid who I didn't really fight. Um, that was mm-hmm. sort of my last resort, but everybody kind of has their breaking point. Yeah. And so I had that one of those moments, you know, and as he punched me, my bag came off of me and kind of in one motion, it was like one of those uh, Hollywood moments. Yeah. The backpack dropped and in kind of one motion, I spun around and I just swung wildly and I connected and the kid bounced backward off the door 
and then came back forward and landed right in my left hand. And so I'm standing there and I've got this kid by the neck. And at that moment, uh, the gymnasium, which was right next to the building we were at, the doors open and the entire basketball team exits from the gym. Perfect. And, um, and so, you know, the basketball team at Godby is, you know, predominantly, you know, black teenage males. And what they see is a young white male holding a young black male by the throat. And so that went the way that you would expect it to. Um, you beat them all up. Like you <laughs> pulled Jackie Chan and you. No, the, um, <laughs> I just remember there being so many people on me that I, it was just, I, I just was totally covered up. Mm. And I remember uh, getting jostled around and being bounced off the wall and being threatened and all types of, you know, profanity and racial epithets being thrown at me. And it was like something in me just kind of snapped. And um, at that point, something just changed in my thinking. And I had this weird idea that um, that you have to, in order to survive, you have to kind of pick a tribe and you go. And so for me, that moment was kind of a dividing line. And I remember it changed the way that I saw people racially mm. and it, 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 it manifested in kind of this racial animus in me. And it wasn't, it wasn't how I was raised. It wasn't based on anything that I saw on television or things that I heard from my parents. It was really just born out of these experiences in middle and high school. Because I was going to ask, I was uh, in this, you know, cause I'm thinking as a parent of a middle schooler, right? I talk, I have conversations with her about if you're getting picked on, if things are happening to you, come talk to me. Like, mm-hmm. go call go, or go talk to somebody at school. Like, inform somebody. Yeah. And maybe, you know, I think you're 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 a bit bit older than I am, not by much, by a couple of years. But I I think now they do a better job of kind of identifying bullies. But I wanted to ask, like. What was your family environment? Did you feel, did you have conversation with your parents about this? Were you reaching out, like, when you're going through all this? Yeah, you know, I've thought about that. I have almost no recollection of ever even talking to my parents mm-hmm. about this stuff. Like, I don't know that my parents even knew to this day about that fight. Wow. Um, you know, and I don't have a good reason for why I didn't share with them. I mean, uh, like I said, I had a good relationship with my parents. Um, you know, I would say looking at that now, as a father of three, it's kind of a reminder to me to not take for granted that just because there's a good home life, you know, yeah. you've got a good relationship with your kids that they're telling you everything that's happening. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't share that, and I don't have a good reason for why. Hmm. But but all of that began to um, really affect, I think, my, my mental well-being during those high school years. And, um, you know, kind of, you know, going in parallel with that, I began to pull away from a lot of my church involvement. Um, the church that I grew up going to, I'm not going to name names, but it, but it was a joke. Uh, I mean, mm. it was just, um, it was a dead church. It was um, hypocritical. I mean, I was part of a youth group where, I mean, we kids were having sex in the baptism loft. You know, our youth room was next to where the deacons would have their meetings. And I remember just these, you know, shouting matches on Wednesday nights of them yelling and arguing with each other. And it just, Lord. it was just a, a dysfunctional environment. And so in my teenage years, I, I you know, I kind of went from time to time because, you know, my mom expected it, but it, but it wasn't, certainly wasn't anything heart related for me. Um, it just began to, it just was just something that I did. But, but, but during those, those 
early to later high school years, you know, there was kind of a snowball effect. You know, that fear began to turn to anger. The anger turned to isolation. The anger, you know, the isolation then, you know, bred depression and despair. And it just, you know, I felt like I was just kind of spiraling. Mm. Um, during those years, I started to struggle a lot with, uh, you know, kind of suicidal thoughts and tendencies. Uh, never acted on any of them, but it was just this oppressive like wet blanket that was just kind of always hanging on me the hopelessness yeah yeah that's a, that's a good way to put it um you know but sometimes god corners us and reveals himself in some of the most weird and unexpected ways um in between my freshman and sophomore year of high school i started dating a girl um that uh, we actually ended up dating for five years so we were together from age 15 through 20 um, and there was a lot of good and bad that came from that relationship. Um, you know, I think our dating probably kept me out of a lot of trouble that I would have gotten into otherwise. But there were a lot of negative things that came from that also because of where my mental state was at the time and the insecurities that I had, you know, that it manifested in a lot of uh, jealousy and a lot of controlling tendencies and just um, unhealthy behavior in our relationship. But but we had an interesting thing happen. So I think um, my, my senior year of high school, um, my girlfriend's name was Kim. Um, she and I had a mutual friend from school named Molly. And uh, Kim and Molly became very close friends. And Kim started hanging out um, at Molly's house. Well, her parents were former missionaries. Uh, I think they had done had served in the Philippines at that point and in Germany for a few years. Um, and, you know, they were, they were kind of a different, you know, di- different family setup. Uh, they did church at their house okay. for one. Uh, they didn't have a TV, you know, freaks. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, for me having grown up knowing only exclusively Southern Baptist churches, you know, I think this group of people that are having church at their house, that means clearly they're a cult. <laughs> Clearly. So, you know, I had started hanging out also at their house Mm. uh, solely to keep tabs on Kim. Right. Um, But what I noticed was this family was different. Like, they were not like anybody I had ever really met before. Um, They were loving toward each other. Molly and her brother were actually like physically affectionate. They would see each other in the hall at school and they would hug each other and hmm. like, what's wrong with these people? They're weirdos. Yeah. Um, but as My a kids f- don't even do that. Learning. <laughs> as a family though, they, they, they genuinely enjoyed each other's company. Mm. They spent time together. They played games together. Uh, they did took walks together, you know, um, being in their home was, uh, there was just always this sense of, peace and stability and safety and i just remember feeling that and just be like this is weird like i like this yeah. what what what's causing this and you know i had heard the gospel i had heard you know i, I knew the stories of jesus i grew up reading bible stories but they're they're molly's parents uh their names were lonnie and renee um you know, they also shared the gospel with us. There was a group of us, you know, that all kind of hung out at their house around the same time. But but more than that, I mean, they really lived it. Um, you know, they welcomed into their home this ragtag group of obnoxious teenagers, and they kind of loved on all of us as if we were their own kids. And um, I didn't really know what the source of that was, but I knew that it was something that I wanted. 
Hmm. Uh, I knew that, that there was something different about it. And at the same time, I think the peace and the love that I felt in their house was kind of juxtaposed with the, uh, the fear and kind of the emptiness that I felt in myself. And so that, um, you know, in the short term, actually made all of the depression and so forth that I was dealing with exponentially worse uh, because it was, it was like shining a light on it, yeah. being around them. But, um, it, you know, it, it, that was kind of the beginning of my searching uh, for some type of deeper spiritual truth. And, uh, you know, it was around that time, you know, probably about halfway through my senior year that I kind of, you know, picked up my Bible that probably had a, you know, good half-inch layer of dust on it at that point. You know, and I remember kind of looking through it and trying to find, like, okay, Lonnie talks about this all the time. Like, there's maybe there's something to this. Yeah. And I remember kind of thumbing through it. And one night um, in my room, I stumbled across um, James 4.8, and that verse says, you know, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And uh, it's just, there's, it's very simple. Like there's nothing super profound about that, yeah. but it was, it was like an epiphany to mm-hmm. me. And I, I remember that night just kind of praying in my loneliness and my despair and just, it was just something like, you know, God, if you're real, like I, I need you. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to do this. Like I'm just miserable. I, I hate my life. Uh, I don't want to do any of this anymore on my own. And and that was it. Like, um, So there I am in my bedroom halfway through my senior year of high school, you know, following an attempt to prevent my girlfriend from getting sucked into a cult. And uh, I end up meeting Jesus mm-hmm. and getting radically saved. Um, so what was the effect of like the um, the anger and like all that stuff you were going through? Um, you know, it kind of dissolved, but it was, it was one of those things that, um, you know, you, there's a weight off your shoulders, but you don't, it's, it's, you don't realize it in, in the moment. And uh, Psalm 34, four says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. And so, you know, there was a funny thing that kind of happened. Um, for those of us growing up in and around church, you know, you hear people talk all the time about us, people having a God-shaped hole in their heart that we try to fill with different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and it always comes up short, you know, kind of blah, blah, blah. But what I realized was that the anger and so forth, the reason that that had kind of melted away was that all of those were a byproduct of that that fear and that insecurity that I was dealing with. And, mm. and I remember my pastor, uh, Lonnie, um, sharing with us one time something that, you know, it's stuck with me to this, to this day. And, you know, growing up, we're taught that the opposite of love is hate. And I remember him sharing with us that that's, that's incorrect, that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. Mm. And... And that's what kind of uh, what kind of shook me, because um, I didn't realize it at the time. But that fear had become, in a sense, kind of an idol in my life. Hmm. Uh, it was uh, it was kind of the pinnacle, and everything in my life, you know, kind of ran downstream from that. And once that fear was displaced by God's love, then everything that came from that fear. 
uh, the insecurity, the anger, the bitterness, the hate, all of that just evaporated because it didn't have the fear to draw its power from. Uh, And that's really what kind of changed me. So much of my life, you know, I kind of scraped and clawed trying to figure out who I was and where I fit in and what my purpose was. And, you know, that night, you know, just sitting by myself in my room, I found out, you know, I knew who I was. You know, at that point, I realized that, you know, my identity was that I was a child of God. And there's such tremendous freedom in that. Um, You know, there's, there's liberty and there's security, you know, knowing that you know, the creator and the architect of the universe, like he chose me, Mm. like specifically, you know, before the foundation of the world, you know, he had a plan for everything that he was going to do and that I was part of that Mm. plan. And knowing that, uh, it changes everything. And, and that none of that was based on anything that I did. It wasn't on my merit. It wasn't on my performance or anything that I mustered of my own. You know, I mean, even now, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for you know, 25 years, you know, but on my best day, you know, I'm still an abject failure, you know, by the standards that God has for us. I mean, like, think about it, like, where would you have been at middle high school if you did not, if you had not met Jesus at that time frame, what path was your life heading towards? Certainly nowhere good. Um I think I would have probably ended up hurting someone else or myself. Mm. Um, there just wasn't a lot. I mean, those were kind of the paths that were in front of me. Yeah, yeah. It's like a fork in the road. Yeah, yeah. But even I, I bring that up because there wasn't. Any, you, you mentioned that it wasn't anything because you had done that would be like, this is why God, if you use the term, chose you. But it wasn't like you were some great kid, right, with this bright young future that you know. You were this loving kid that had a gift for, you know, some some talent that no. you could bring to the kingdom. You know what I mean? You were this angry no, was, but also depressed, lonely, like you said, almost suicidal. Yeah, just a kid. goofy, awkward 18-year-old, you know, <laughs> yeah. who was, you know, arrogant and mouthy and yeah. um, crass and off-color. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So now you're now you're saved and, and you know yeah still all of those things <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but that's the beauty of it I mean it's um, you know when I stand before God it's he doesn't see me he doesn't mm. see my failings when he looks at me God sees Jesus and and that's that's why I'm worthy I'm worthy because his son who he sent to die in my place was worthy yeah and and that's that's where my identity is yeah amen. You know, heading into college, my college years were probably a little different than a lot of people's because I was kind of riding that high. Mm. You know, I kind of refer to college as sort of the honeymoon period um, for me on my faith walk. Um, and, you know, I had started um, at this point, you know, Kim and I had broken up, you know, in the early years of college. And, um, and it was tough because we had been together for a really long time. But, you know, we knew that that wasn't what God had. And um, we're, I mean, we're still close friends to this day. And, you know, she'll pop up later on in the story in some interesting and kind of bizarre ways. But I had started dating someone else at the end of college, and just, you know, it was a mistake from the very beginning. 
Um, the relationship quickly became physical. Uh, it was really never healthy from the start. Um, but I got in this weird spot where I just kind of rationalized that everything was okay, you know, and mostly it was okay because, cause I wanted it to be okay. Mm, yeah. And, um, yeah, I think one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible to me, uh, is, is Jeremiah seventeen nine, and it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can understand it. And, uh, and I kind of, uh, you know, that was what I was facing. I mean, when you, when you really want something, you know, your heart can sound an awful lot like God's voice and it'll tell you to do really stupid things. And if you're being a bonehead college student, you know, you're going to do those stupid things. And so I, I spent the better part of the next nine months just kind of doing whatever I felt like doing, you know, my emotions and my appetites kind of led me around by the nose. Um, I was living a double life, um, at that point, I was a youth leader in the church that I was going to. Uh, I played music on the worship team. You know, I was in, involved in all these ministry things, and I'd leave church, and I'd go shack up with my girlfriend. Mm. You know, like, uh, no big deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, no duality here. It's yeah. all good. And um, Replicating that that experience almost that you said you had in that church when you were younger, you know? Where yeah. You said, like, they were having sex in the, the baptismal. Sure, yeah. And, you know, that— relationship failed, you know, clearly. Um, but I, I tried to piece things together, you know, and, and I really thought that I was going to marry that girl. You know, after I had, you know, messed things up pretty well relationally, you know, I started trying to piece things back together. And, uh, you know, but the problem was, I was trying to piece things back together. Um, I don't think I ever even asked God, you know, Hey, what his opinion is, yeah. <laughs> should I be in this relationship? Because I, I mean, I think deep down I knew the answer. Uh, and the answer was no, I was, I was being an idiot. And so, um, I remember one day we were talking and she just kind of came right out and told me, she's like, Hey, uh, I don't think I could ever marry you. And I was like, um, why? And then the bomb dropped. And I remember she looked me in the face and she said, uh, I don't think I could ever respect you as a man of God. And I was just like, oh, like that, that stung. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, badly. And you, had you been justifying some of your relationship? Oh, all of it. Because you, know? you thought you were going to marry her? Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I reacted in anger at first, and I went through this kind of weird phase of like sort of shaking my fist at God and somehow trying to, you know, lay blame on Him for things being, you know, all muddled up. Um, but in the end, I really had to kind of come face to face with the reality that, you know, that's the blame lands in one spot, and that mm -hmm. was at my feet. And, um, you know, but the silver lining is that, you know, despite me having screwed all of that up despite my failure despite my anger you know i literally shook my fists and cursed god in that moment and god's response was i still love you mm. and um you know while i didn't audibly hear that you know i mean that that penetrated through that fog and kind of shook me up you know out of uh all the nonsense that i was wandering around in and, you know, and I knew that, that God was wanting to continue working through me and, and working out, you know, all the messed up ideas and things that were going around in my head. Um, 
And so it, it was the truth that I needed to hear, even though I hated hearing it at the time. Um, but I had to face that I had been living a duality in my life and that I was going to have to make a decision. You know, did I want to continue just kind of following my flesh and letting my emotions dictate what I did and didn't do? <clears throat> or was I going to follow God mm-hmm. and, and square up on things? And, uh, and, you know, and that's the path that I chose. Yeah. But a funny thing happened in the middle of all of that. Um, you know, there, I kind of reconnected with somebody who had been just an acquaintance, but things would change kind of a good bit. So I, I mentioned how I came into a relationship with the Peck family that um, I had been dating Kim and that we started hanging out with that family because of our mutual friend, Molly. Well, Molly had a kid brother, Ryan, that was a few years younger. And at the time, Ryan was dating this girl named Barbara. Mm. Uh, and so I knew Barbara very loosely, just as that's the girl that's dating Molly's younger brother. Well, a lot had changed over the years. Um, breakups, growth, maturing, reconnecting. So as we, you know, as I reconnected with everybody, um, I, I got to kind of re-meet Barbara is a different person, and uh, I developed a quick and deep uh, affection for her, uh, and I conveniently managed to find any and every opportunity to, uh, you know, be at places where I right. knew she would be at, you know, That's how it works. Bible studies, friends' houses, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, you know, kind of, you know, loiter around the back for church, and then just, oh, there's this seat available next to her, oh, I guess I'll sit here, yeah, strategically. you know. Uh, Having a seat open, that's good. That's yeah, good. yeah. And, um, you know, she and I both had been talking to my ex-girlfriend, Kim, um, about having feelings for one another, but we both felt that the other was out of our league. Hmm. And so it didn't take long for Kim to exhaust of this game and just say, just sit down and talk for the love of all that's holy. Please get me out of the middle of this. So, um, you know, we ended up talking, and uh, and talking led to dating. And, um, you know, ironically, you know, over the years, all of us who had been in this weird, you know, relational tangle have all re- remained really good friends. You know, Ryan, her ex-boyfriend, became one of my best friends, and Barbara and Kim are still very close to this day. And uh, it was easy because there were certain lines relationally that weren't crossed. That mm-hmm. makes it a lot easier to, you know, still be friends, yeah, yeah. you know, later on. Uh, so we talked and we talked and we talked. And then uh, our relationship developed, you know, really pretty quickly. So in uh, like October of 98, we started talking. In December, we started formally dating. Uh, in February, we got engaged. And in November, we got married. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. so like it ramped up really quick. Yeah. Uh, at the ages of 23 for me and 20 for Barbara, uh, we got married. Mm. And uh, uh, probably not a moment too soon. <laughs> um, right. So... Uh, you know, at that point, we're starting a family, and, uh, you know, nobody really understands just how selfish you are, I think, until you get married. Um, and then you don't realize how selfish you are until you have kids. And so uh, I think I mentioned earlier on that uh, Barbara and I have three children. Uh, my son Jonathan is 19, my daughter Kara is 15, and my son Jacob is 12. Uh, we were just shy of our first anniversary when we were discover- we discovered that we were pregnant with Jonathan. And so, you know, there was, I mean, you talk about from, you know, beginning dating to having our first child was 
basically like a two-year window yeah. you know, from one to the other. And uh, so there was a lot of growing up that happened you know, real fast in those first couple of years of marriage. Um, I'm really grateful that Barbara and I had people around us who were um, seasoned and had successful marriages that were able to kind of take us under wing and uh, mentor and guide us, you know, on what a healthy marriage looked like and to really build in us, you know, good, solid uh, principles that have mm -hmm. helped us, you know, uh, November of this year will be our 21st anniversary. Uh, and marriage is tough. You know, yeah. it's, um, there's, life will throw every reason at you to throw in the towel and bail out on marriage. But, um, but God is faithful. And if you stay focused, you know, you can prevail through that. And, you know, she's my closest friend and my confidant. And uh, I would not be a fraction of who I am, you know, if, if it weren't for her and for all of the people that have sewn into to our lives. So in 2014, um, my church had announced that they were going to embark on a, a short-term mission trip to uh, to Peru, and uh, you know I used to go on those trips you know regularly in college when I could, and it had been you know over a decade since I had been on one, and I was like, yeah, sure, you know I'll go, you know, so I signed up, and. Um, you know, we, we tend to look at these kinds of trips from the perspective, you know, we're Americans, you know, what we're going to bring to the people of, you know, fill in the blank right. country. It's not to say that, you, you know, if you do a short term mission that, that you're not helping people, that you're not of service somewhere. But, you know, a lot of times when we embark on a, a short term mission trip, you know, the people who get changed the most are actually us, not mm -hmm. the people we're ministering to. Um, and that was absolutely the case for me. And, and I and I feel like that you know, the desire to go on that trip, I feel like was placed there by God as kind of to, to wake me up back up and to remind me of who I am and, and what he was putting in front of me. And that, you know, there's nothing wrong with running a business. There's nothing wrong with being successful, but that's what I do. It's not who I am. That's right. And, uh, that trip to Lima, Peru, those 10 days completely changed my life. Um, you know, Church is not something that you go to once a week. Church is life. It's community. And I was reminded of that being in this culture because, you know, I'm spending 10 days in this country where, you know, the creature comforts there. They don't have a lot of the excess that we have here. It's not that they're, you know, all super struggling. I mean, Lima has areas that are, you know, hugely well-developed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's parts of it that look like you're in downtown Manhattan. But, but it was the church there that really struck me. Uh, the people that were there, I mean, they, they really spent time together. Um, it wasn't full of little cliques like the in crowd and the out crowd and the cool people and the not cool people. It was like everyone there, young, old, male, female, wealthy, poor, everyone there lived together. Like they were invested communally with one another uh, and they were involved in each other's lives. And what really struck me there is is how excited the people at that church were to serve to serve each other, to serve their community. It's kind of what they lived for. It didn't matter if it was cleaning the church, if it was preparing, preparing food for people in need, or if it was out, you know, cleaning up trash off the streets. I mean, it was 11 million people in Lima. There's a lot of trash on the street. <laughs> but 
the church there, they, they relished the opportunity to kind of be the hands and feet of Jesus. And, and it just, that left a mark on me. That was a side of church that I had never really seen before. Um, and in the middle of all of it, everyone there was just, they were so happy and joyful in the middle of it. Uh, there was a contentment and a fulfillment that I hadn't really been around before. And, uh, you know, I came away being reminded that it, it's people that matter, you know, above everything else. Right. And, and that's it. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what Jesus died for. He died for people. You know, all the things that we have around us that distract us, those things can, can you know, just get in the way of, of what's really important. And so coming back from that trip, you know, I was equal parts, I think, invigorated and depressed. You know, I was depressed because I had allowed myself once again to become so entangled with things that didn't matter. And, you know, chasing status and looking for inclusion and, you know, awards and, you know, crap that just doesn't matter. But I was invigorated in knowing that I didn't have to stay there. You know, that, I, you know, I, I, it was up to me to decide, you know, what am I going to do? And, uh, and that there was a different way and there was a better way. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I purposed that that's what I was going to follow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I kind of adopted, you know, Galatians 2.20 as, as sort of one of my life verses that I try to remind myself of on a regular basis. You know, if I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That this life that I live now, what I do day in and day out, like this is not for me to decide. This life that I'm living is, you know, this is Christ. And, and this is, you know, I'm to be doing what he has called me to do. So I decided that, you know, for the season that I'm in in my life now of running this business at Taproot, um, I was going to do it differently. Yes, it's a business. Uh, yes, I still have the goal of being successful. Um, but I could define what those terms meant, you know, in practice. And so now, you know, I try to approach it so that success isn't necessarily measured by solely monetary gain, um, you know, or by, you know, beating out a competitor you know, or by winning awards or accolades, you know, it could also mean, you know, caring for the families that God's brought into my life, those people who God has entrusted to me, you know, in my circle of influence. It could mean using the skills that God gave me to help, you know, serve my local community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it could mean refusing to compromise and, and living with integrity, you know, even if it meant, you know, slower growth as business or not growing at all. I mean, we've gone through seasons of where, you know, no matter what I do to try to do the right thing, you know, just the work doesn't come, you know, and I have to learn to be content and to trust God just as much in that as, you know, when we're just laying waste to our competitors. <laughs> Like a lot of my testimony, it's it's nothing earth shattering, you know, or crazy. I just right now I'm trying to simply and consistently follow Jesus and to represent him faithfully to the world around me. Um, you know, I fall, I get up, I dust off, I repent, I keep going, you know, rinse uh -huh. and repeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in, in the middle of that I try to remind myself of who I am. Um, 
not what I feel about myself, not mm-hmm. what other people say about who I am, but, but you know, what, what God says about me. Um, you know, and when my opinion or my perspective on something is different than what God's Word says, you know, I have to remind myself that it's, it's I who have to change. You know, God doesn't change. You know, it's, it's always me every time. Um, but, you know, I am who he says I am. You know, um, and in First Peter, he says that, you know, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, it's not a popular mindset these days, but, you know, belief doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, what you believe yields action. And if that action isn't there, then you have to really question, you know, do you really believe the things that you say you do? You know, as I've gotten older, um, you know, I'm trying to be more introspective. You know, I'm trying to look at uh, how I'm living my life and if, you know, the the fruit of my life, you know, reflects the words that I speak. And, you know, quite often it doesn't. And it doesn't mean I give up. It just means I have to root out why, you know, what's causing that mismatch and, and fix it, you know. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's really not I who fix it. It's me learning to get out of the way and let God fix it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's kind of my story. Thank you for sharing it. Like, I, I, I think you do your, your testimony a little bit disservice. I think acting like or saying that, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't remember how you put it earlier, but you almost like downplayed your testimony because you didn't have all this, this, these crazy things that happened. But yeah, uh, you don't have to have this like epic, like I did this horrible thing and God pulled me out of it. Uh, that's not always how testimonies work. Sometimes it's just the faithfulness of God through our lives that he stuck by me even when I was being stupid, you know? Absolutely. You know? Um, and that's a te- that alone is a testament because that will give, hopefully, people hope that when they're in the moment, maybe right now they're stuck in their, like you were 10 years ago or something, you know? And they're stuck in these these where they don't feel God's close, where they don't feel they're, they're close to God. And that's an us issue, not a God issue. Yeah. You know, God's there. Yeah. You know, he never moves. It's always back, us who move. Yeah, that's right. Going back to the, the scripture you said earlier, draw near to him and God will draw near to you. But the fact, I, what I love about that scripture is, yeah, we need to draw near, but God's there. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. the drawing for him is like an inch. We, you know, maybe we have to come a little bit more. Um, and so thank you for sharing. Uh, I love it. You know, Jesus is faithful. God is faithful. I'm excited about you guys coming, being at Red Hills, you, uh, you and Barbara and your kids. Uh, it's, 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 it's been great just having you a part of our family. I know you guys came around, right? You started coming like, what was it, about a month maybe before uh, we all had to get quarantined. Yep. And I was kind of worried. I was like, man, I really hope I like those people. Like, I really hope that, that this doesn't like give them a reason just to like stay home but um, you guys are amazing and I'm just loving having you guys around yeah we're loving it too thanks no problem man appreciate it thank you for listening